Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next normal leadership series featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Danny Gilbert, the managing partner of Gilbert and Tobin. Gilbert and Tobin is a firm of over 830 persons with offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth, committed to both excellence and corporate citizenship. During this episode, Liam and Danny discuss leadership during challenging times, leadership consistency over time, and the business challenges that need consistent focus, specifically profitability and financial strength. Danny, thank you for joining me to talk a little bit today. Would you introduce the firm and yourself? how you ended up where you are running the firm today. With another fellow, Tony Tobin, we started the firm 33 years ago in January. We'd both been partners in an old establishment firm in Sydney. He's now a part of the International Norton Rose Group. We just decided that we wanted to break out and do something on our own. It was quite a tough economic time then. 1988, we started. The economy wasn't that great. We didn't know how it would go. But we just thought we would start the firm, see what work we could attract, and build from there. I think at the end of the first year, we had about four lawyers working for us, and today there are about 830 or 40 people in the firm. In the first 10 years of the firm, we strategically decided to focus on technology, telecommunications, and media, and we became known as a boutique for the first 10, 12 years of the firm. I decided to change all of that at around the time of the tech wreck in the early 2000s and to build an institutional corporate firm and to take on the establishment, uh, large firms who at that time had been around, many of them for more than 100 years. Quite controversial at the time. I think we lost a few partners who thought that it wouldn't work. We wouldn't be able to take any work from them and we wouldn't be able to meet them face-to-face in the street as a first-tier competitor. Those naysayers have proven to be wrong. The firm is now one of the country's leading corporate law firms. One of the things that I wanted to do from the get-go, I was always very concerned and determined that we would build not only a firm of the highest professional standards, but a firm that would be a strong, if not outstanding, corporate citizen. And the expression of that for me was through the support for lots of different sort of organizations, but fundamentally around our pro bono practice and the emphasis on our pro bono practice and a great passion of mine now for the last 30 years has been the advancement of Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to try to correct the deficits that have bedeviled their lives now since the country was settled 100 to 130 years ago things like that. And also, you know, we've done things like support the establish a centre for public law at the University of New South Wales, probably the leading public law think tank um, in the country, one of the leaders in the world. So we've tried to be a firm that matters, not just in the work that we do, but as an influencer. And as a result, I've had a fairly privileged position. I serve on the board of the Business Council of Australia, and I've had lots of different roles over the years corporate roles and for not-for-profits as well. Thank you, Danny. You started back in the late 80s, which was the beginning of my career. There were some tough years there. So what gave you that 
confidence to transform the firm? And perhaps maybe was it related at all to the confidence that you had to find in yourself in the first place to actually start the firm? A bit of that. With every year, and you see what you've achieved in the year gone, it builds your confidence to take on the next challenge. And as we were doing that, and I observed the strengths and weaknesses of the other major firms, I took the view, well, there was no reason why we can't do this. I suppose I'm fundamentally a builder and a risk taker, and I was excited by the challenge of it. I was not interested in just coming to work, having a few clients and doing a good job. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's completely laudable, but it wasn't my shtick. I wanted to leave a mark, and I still do. I like the term a firm that matters. We're talking about in society today. Younger colleagues bring that to work. And in some ways, people act as if that is or say that's a new. I'm sure that that is something that leaders have thought about for generations. Why did you want to build that into the firm from the very beginning? And how do you feel as you bring on younger professionals? How do you ensure that that really continues to be at the core of the firm? I wanted it to be about more than just me or more than the partners. I mean, I have throughout my professional life been somebody who wanted to give something back to the community in which I live and which has given me sort of the privilege that I have. I've always thought that that was an obligation of professionalism, but also a personal commitment that I have that comes a bit from my religious background as well, I'd say. One of the things that we talk about at Elevate is bringing our whole self to work. You just touched on a belief. And I think that's something that many people are uncomfortable. You always feel a bit uncomfortable about it. I agree with you. I don't think it's particularly new, but I think the expression of it has faced barriers in the past. And I think that in the corporate world, the focus on shareholder return and the primacy of that over and above, all of those kind of dynamics have changed for a whole range of reasons. The GFC, the growth of the regulator, the failings in many respects of our democratic process, and people are looking for more and they want more people to step up. And I think there's a stronger understanding that you can't just look to one or two institutions because most of them are failed in some respects and have their warts and challenges. So to make a society work, all of the constituent elements of that society have to step up. And of course, the rule of law is an important one and access to justice and those sorts of things. And that's more out there than it once was. And young people, I think, have identified that and want to be associated with organizations that bring that care and capacity to make a difference to what they do. Mind you, there are some tensions around that as well, because to build what I've built requires hard work. And at the moment, there's a pushback against that. But that's also coming from young people who want to live a different life to that. I think that's a challenge that we have yet to answer. Maybe the answer sits somewhere within the COVID crisis in that it has afforded people to perhaps better balance their lives, spend more time at home. That's not something that I think is complete good either. Time will tell. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Even though our professional worlds overlap, we don't know each other. And I work with a lot of professionals who have chosen an untraditional path. And many of them bring non-traditional ways of thinking to a legal business. And it requires me navigating these tensions. I find that in navigating the tensions, welcoming bringing your whole self to work, speaking about 
We have an initiative called Workplace of the Future, which is where we talk about what will the professional world look like over the coming years. We have a weekly pulse check-in, so we get a sense of how people feel. And you touched on it earlier on. It is no longer merely shareholder or capital owner sort of primacy. There are lots of stakeholders that we need to balance. So I find myself sometimes really working hard about supporting the structures of the company, or in your case, a firm, and not getting too drawn into deciding about where to fall on any one matter on that sliding scale of where the tensions are. So it's almost, in a sense, creating the system that allows all these tensions to exist, that creates an emergent company rather than be the decider of whether or not we're going to allow, you know, I'm not going to make a decision about whether or not people choose to work from home or not. I'm not going to make a decision about the amount of the hours that people make. I'm not going to, so I'm quite, but I'm quite careful to provide an environment where people can talk about, discuss, and as a community come to the best outcome. So that's a very long statement or question, but I'm interested as someone who is a leader of a legal business a little bit further along you can kind of look back on the journey that you've been on. Yeah, How do you manage or feel about all of these tensions, both within a firm and then perhaps within the broader liberal social democracy? You're right. In a general sense, you can't intervene and seek to resolve every point of tension. And you need to let other people resolve those issues. Sometimes it's just not good expenditure of your time. And sometimes other people just need to get on with things and develop their own leadership and their own solutions to things. But there are peaks of behaviours and outcomes in that description which can't be left unattended and which may need to be ameliorated by a leader. So you might not care whether people work from home or not in an instant, but you do care in overall sense of what it's going to do to the culture of the organisation and to the future of the firm. So ultimately you have to have a view And that view has to be capable of being carefully thought about and expressed. But I don't think you need to rush into these things. And when there are changes afoot that you can't completely control, you do need to observe and let the thing flow. So, for instance, on the future of work, I think it's too early to call out what that might look like. I think it's healthy to have the discussions, but we can sit back and watch and we can have have views about it. That's just one example. I'm a great believer in leaving things to all the organics, the dynamic of the people who come to work every day to sort out. And I try to resist too much top-down process. Although in this day and age, you do have to have policies around the whole range of issues. We were a firm in the 90s that was fairly chaotic. I think we thrived on that chaos and into the 2000s. But Times have changed and you have to adapt. We can't be that organized chaos that we were. I think it's a real challenge now, Danny. We are navigating the healthcare crisis. We're navigating economic crisis and upwelling of social justice and crises associated with inequities. As a leader, thinking about how do we do this sustainably, pointing towards something that people can choose to be part of. And I try to not be drawn on picking sides in these issues. I've got my personal views, strong personal beliefs about these issues. Going back to the institutions in society and the versions of that inside a firm or an organization or a company, I do think that it's actually healthy to have 
tensions and a kind of interlocking system of policy, leadership, or even different points of view, that energy needs to be managed in some way so that it leads towards a shared future that people choose. I suppose people would be surprised if they thought that I agreed with what you said. I have some empathy with that view, but I think it is the role of a leader to have a view and to express that view and to have clarity about where he or she wants the business to be, what he or she wants the business to look like, and how people are to behave in it, and the issues of concern. There's probably some tension between the two, and timing is everything as to when you bring these views to the table. But I think you need to have them, and people here expect that I'll have views about things, that I'll have clarity. I think the risk, if you don't, is you're not seen to be a strong leader. And I think in uncertain times, you want your people to think that you are a strong, if not visionary leader. If there's tensions between those two viewpoints, I probably opt for the one that I've just expressed. I hear you. And I think that that's really interesting because I think a lot of people right now, leaders are always questioning their own development and progress and the imposter syndrome of how did I end up here? If you look to the future of your firm or firms, how prepared do you feel to be able to, with the benefit of that history, but also with the legacy of that history, how prepared do you feel? And what are the kinds of things that you think that we should be preparing for, for this next normal and what the future of a firm can be? Well, I feel pretty prepared and very optimistic. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but it is highly, if not completely dependent for the immediate term on the economy, on how we will fare and the decisions we will have to make will depend on the economy and how that part of the market that we serve thrives in if there is going to be uh, great economic damage to the Australian economy and the international economy. So you can't think about the future that has to be factored into your thinking. It's the overwhelming anxiety or challenge for any firm is wondering about, is that going to kick in? How are we going to cope with it? How are we going to look after our people? Um, is there going to be enough work coming from our clients, etc.? If we were having this interview this time last year, I would have felt very confident about the future and our capacity to meet those challenges. Many observers say that the challenges presented by this pandemic is simply to bring forward challenges that you would have had to meet anyway around flexible working, people working from home, the challenge of technology, how do you empower people in the new world, how do you meet the more diverse needs of your workplace, how do you meet the demands of clients at our part of the market who still demand seven days a week attention to their affairs and their affairs and transactions. We do complex work in everything that we do, which is very time-consuming and demanding of consistent hours. And technology is simply an enabler of that. Technology doesn't reduce that pressure. If anything, it creates more because the expectations around capacity and delivery simply escalate it by whatever it is the technology facilitates. I see that. I had an interesting experiment with two of our financial services customers. We ran a program where we actually put some guidelines. We agreed some guidelines with our customers. And I know we're in a slightly different business, but we agreed with one of those financial institutions that if you send your team messages after, I think, 6 p.m. in the evening, we would 
not respond to them until eight o'clock or nine o'clock the following morning as a kind of guideline between us, unless there was a kind of asterisk of this is urgent. And then with the other customer, we, the other financial institution, we didn't do that. And what was fascinating was that by actively engaging in that conversation with the customer, they were more mindful about the fact that they didn't just assume that we were on 24 by 7. And I bring this up because I was in a meeting with the managing partners in New York considered to be peers. And one of the conversations was that this is not just a problem for law firm managing partners to solve. And it's actually also not something that is appropriate for the general counsel to make this be a problem only for managing partners to solve. It is actually a shared responsibility that we need to agree. The point that you're making is that in the advice of law, it is a 24 by 7 world and there are demands that are real, that are around the clock. And unless you're mindful and have some shared agreement with clients on it, you could end up just working all the time with the technologies that we have available. You make a good point. Maybe the future will see all of those conversations with your clients and some better understanding. I'm struggling to see it. I mean, you'd have to have a similar understanding with regulators. Notice to produce thousands, if not millions of documents within short order. You'd have to have a similar conversation with the courts and you'd have to have similar conversations with the bankers who are not really built that way. It depends on the nature of your client and where you sit in the ecosystem. We have positioned the firm, those things that you've just mentioned as something that perhaps could be done feel quite hard. If you overlay that with intense competition, there'd be many firms that would be very worried about having that conversation with a client because the people down the road would say, well, that's absolute rubbish. We'll deliver what you want, when you want it, no matter what. And the clients are always going to like that. I'll tell you, Danny, it was kind of interesting between the financial institution clients and the managing partners. And it was quite clear that I touched on a, a third rail, so to speak. If you could speak to the 20-year younger version of yourself, and you think about the leaders that you work with now, what would be the advice that you would give the 20-year younger Danny that perhaps you might share with the next level of leaders coming through in your firm? You have to be on top of the technological changes and the new software systems that are going to become available across everything we do. I mean, there's probably very little that we do that can't be automated. And if that automation is going to mean taking expense out of the business, then clients will expect that you do that. And so large law firms won't have the same number of people doing the same jobs, and they'll have different expertise and some of those people will be as important to the firm as the best partners. So how do you change the thinking of the partners and the firm and build that into the psyche of the organization to be flexible and adaptable about all of that? Because in 10 years' time, these firms won't look a lot like they do. And how do you transition to your new normal and treat people properly and give people the opportunity to be a part of that? I think that's quite a challenge to be thought about. And if you lay on top of that expectations of lifestyle and people wanting to work from home and the expectations of clients that you're going to be culturally aligned with them, same point, and to have uh, views about the communities that you work in, the environments that you work in that are aligned with theirs. There's a number of different challenges that we need to think about that one time we would not have had to. And you have to be running a business on top of all of that. I think that profitability and financial strength 
is incredibly important and will become more so. You can't meet all of those challenges, attract the best people, get the best partners and pay them uh, what they can get in the market unless you are a very profitable, probably fairly reasonably hard-nosed kind of organization. Managing all of those things and talking to people about them, communicating about them and bringing everybody with you is a big challenge for the future. Yeah, that really resonates with me. When you talked earlier on about your own personal style, Danny, about having a point of view about the future, it's very important to face the reality. That's almost de rigueur right now to sweep that away. But as the kind of economic environment has shone a spotlight, in my view, for any of us who have lived through multiple recessions, it's really shone a spotlight on that is the oil in our company. It's the number one priority is to keep the business strong and safe. Interesting answers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All the best. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. 